stories of imagination are never far. They still reside in us, guiding us ever forward. Join us now as we journey forward into the past. And here is your host, J.C. Riddell. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of Forward Into the Past. I'm J.C. Riday, your host and narrator, and today we're starting the final Nick Carter story for this season, this one from March of 1915 called A Fatal Message, or Nick Carter's Slender Clue. Nick Carter is often credited as the first true detective hero of the story papers, but he was by no means the only one. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a host of other popular detectives graced the pages of these popular publications, each with their own unique skills and personality. One of the most notable of these detectives was Old Cap Collier. First appearing in the story paper Old Cap Collier's Detective Library in 1887, Old Cap was a grizzled veteran of the Civil War who used his skills as a scout and spy to solve crimes. He was also a skilled marksman and hand-to-hand combatant, making him a formidable opponent for even the most hardened criminals. Another popular detective was Race Williams, who first appeared in the story paper Detective Story Magazine in 1924. Created by writer Carol John Daly, Race was a tough and cynical detective who was not afraid to bend the rules to get the job done. He was also a skilled gambler and a ladies' man, making him a complex and intriguing character. Craig Kennedy was a scientific detective who first appeared in the story paper Detective Fiction Weekly in 1919. Created by writer Arthur B. Reeve, Craig was a brilliant chemist and inventor who used his knowledge of science to solve crimes. He was also a skilled detective, able to piece together clues and identify suspects with the help of his trusty assistant, Dora Barton. These are just a few of the many popular detectives who appeared in the story papers. Other notable detectives include The Spider, created by Johnston McCulley, The Lone Wolf, created by Louis Joseph Vance, The Black Bat, created by Harry Houdini, The Green Archer, created by Edgar Wallace, The Whisperer, created by Frederick C. Davis. These detectives were all popular for different reasons. Some were known for their intelligence and deduction skills, while others were known for their physical prowess or their ability to blend in with the criminal underworld. But they all shared a common goal to bring criminals to justice and protect the innocent. The story papers, of course, were a major force in popular culture in the late 19th and early 20th century. They helped to create and popularize the detective genre, and they introduced readers to a host of iconic characters who continue to be enjoyed by fans of mystery fiction today. Now, in addition to the detectives I mentioned earlier, there were also a number of female detectives who appeared in the story papers. 
Now, these detectives were often just as skilled and resourceful as their male counterpart, and they helped to break down gender stereotypes in the mystery genre. One of the most notable female detectives was Polly Perkins. Created by writer Frederick C. Davis, Polly was a private detective who was known for her sharp wit and her ability to get the job done. She was a skilled detective, able to piece together clues and identify suspects with the help of her trusty sidekick, Ginger. Another popular female detective was Madame Sarah. Created by writer Arthur B. Reeve, Madame Sarah was a psychic detective who used her visions to solve crimes. She was also a skilled detective, able to use her knowledge of human psychology to identify suspects and motives. The female detectives of the story papers helped to pave the way for the strong female detectives who are now a staple of the mystery genre. They showed that women could be just as intelligent and capable as men when it came to solving crimes. Now, the story papers may be gone, but the detectives who appeared in their pages continue to live on in popular culture. These detectives are still enjoyed by readers of mystery fiction today, and they continue to inspire new generations of writers and fans. And, speaking of inspiring fans, <laughs> let's get to it, friends, as we begin the 1915 Nick Carter mystery, A Fatal Message, or Nick Carter's Slender Clue. Chapter 1. A Suspicious Wire Nick Carter leaned nearer to the wall and listened to what the two men were discussing. The wall was that of a booth in the cafe of the Shelby House. It was a partition of matched sheathing only, through which ordinary conversation in the adjoining booth could easily be overheard, and both men in this case spoke above an ordinary tone. Obviously, therefore, they were discussing nothing of a private nature or anything thought to be of much importance or serious significance. It meant no more to them, in fact, than it would have meant to most men to all save one in a million. That one in a million was seated alone in the next booth, Nick Carter. The two men were strangers to the detective. They had entered when he was near the end of his lunch, and while waiting for their orders to be served, they engaged in conversation which, though heard only by chance, soon seriously impressed the detective. You were a little later than usual this noon, Belden, said one. Yes, a few minutes, Joe, but... I thought you would wait for me. My ticker got busy just as I was about to leave. I remained to take the dispatch, Gordon, and it proved to be quite a long one. Something important? No, not very. Only political news for the local paper. Belden evidently is a telegraph operator, thought Nick. Anything warm by wire this morning? questioned Gordon. No, nothing, said Belden. And then he abruptly added, There was a singular message, however and an unusual circumstance in connection with it. Hmm, how so, Arthur? The dispatch was addressed to John Dalton, and we were instructed to hold it till called for, Belden explained. I looked in the local directory, but it contained no John Dalton. I inferred that he was a traveling man or a visitor in town whose address was not known by the sender. Well, naturally. Strange to say, however, he showed up in about five minutes and asked if we had a dispatch for him. Why, is there anything strange in that? 
He evidently was expecting it. Well, it was strange that he came in so quickly, almost while I was receiving the message itself. That, too, was singular. The message? Well, yes. Why so? Well, as I remember it, Joe, it read, Dust flying. S.D. on way. Where eagle? said Belden. It was signed with only a single name. Martin. It was then that Nick Carter pricked up his ears and leaned nearer to the wall to hear what the two men were saying. By Jove, that was a bit singular, remarked Gordon. Well, I thought so. Dust flying, eh? Gordon laughed. Well, the dispatch must have come from a windy city. Well, it came from Philadelphia. Oh, I'm wrong then. Not even dust flies in Philadelphia. Did Dalton send an answer? Not that I know of. Certainly not from our office. Or volunteer any explanation? No. It probably was a coded message or had some secret significance. He took the dispatch and departed. A stranger to you, eh? A total stranger. I don't imagine the message amounted to anything. It appeared a bit odd, however, and... Here's our grub. Belden broke off abruptly. The martini is mine, waiter. Here's luck, Joe. It was obvious to Nick that the discussion of the telegram was ended. He immediately arose and departed. He sauntered into the hotel office, then out through the adjoining corridor, which just then was deserted, of which he took advantage. He quickly adjusted a simple disguise with which he was provided, and he then passed out of a side door leading to the street. Nick was watching the cafe when the two men emerged. He followed them until Gordon parted from his companion and entered a large hardware store where he evidently was employed. Arthur Belden walked on leisurely alone, and Nick judged that he was heading for the main office of the Western Union Company, whose sign projected from a building some fifty yards away. The detective walked more rapidly and quickly overtook him. How are you, Belden? said he, slipping his hand through the young man's arm. Don't appear surprised. Pretend that you know me. I have something to say to you. Belden was quick-witted, and he immediately nodded and smiled. I will explain presently, Nick continued. We'll wait until we are undercover. It's barely possible that we are observed. You work in the telegraph office, don't you? Yes, I'm assistant manager. Got a private office? Yes, I receive and send most of the important dispatches. Good enough. I'm going with you to your office. Carry yourself as if it was nothing unusual. Fine day overhead, isn't it? <laughs> yes, great, laughed Belden, gazing up. This way, what will cross here? Nick accompanied him across the street into the building. Not until they were seated in his private office, however, did the detective refer to the matter actuating him. I was in the adjoining booth while you and your friend Gordon were discussing a telegram received here this morning, Nick then explained. I wish to talk with you about it. For what reason? questioned Belden, more sharply regarding him. Have you any authority in the matter? Yes. How so? Who are you? Nick saw plainly that the young man was trustworthy. He smiled agreeably, yet said quite impressively, This is strictly between us, Belden, so be sure that you don't betray my confidence under any circumstances. I am in Shelby on very important business. Any indiscretion on your part might prove very costly. You read your local newspaper and must know me by name, at least. I am the New York detective, Nick Carter. Belden's frank face underwent a decided change. He quickly extended his hand, saying earnestly, By gracious, 
I ought to have guessed it. Know you by name? Well, I should say so. I'm mighty glad to meet you too, Mr. Carter, and to be of any service. The local paper has, indeed, had a good deal to say about you and your mission here, as well as about your running down Carl Glidden's murderer, Jim Reardon. Yes, by Jove, I ought to have guessed it. Belden referred to recent events. The secret employment of Nick and his assistants to run down the perpetrators of a long series of crimes on the S&O Railway. His investigation of the murder of the night operator in one of the block signal towers, resulting in the detection and death of the culprit, James Reardon, and the arrest of several of his associates suspected of being identified with the railway outlaws, though their guilt could not be then proved. All had occurred during the ten days that Nick Carter, Chick, and Patsy had been in Shelby, and all still were vividly fresh in the public mind. Nick smiled faintly at Belden's enthusiastic remarks. We still have much to accomplish here, he replied, referring to himself and his assistants. We got James Reardon all right, and cleaned up that signal tower mystery, which was what we first undertook to do. That did not clinch our suspicions against some of his associates, however, as I had hoped it would. I refer to Jake Hanlon, Link McGee, and Dick Bryer, who have succeeded in wriggling from under the wheels of justice. But you expect to get them later? I expect to, yes, said Nick. But my identity and mission in Shelby now are generally known. That has put the railway bandits on their guard, which makes our work more difficult. But that's neither here nor there, Mr. Belden, and I am wasting time. I wish to see a copy of that telegram that you were discussing with Gordon, and to ask you a few questions about it. Go ahead. Go as far as you like, Miss Carter. I'll never mention a word of it, Belden earnestly assured him. Good for you, Nick replied. About what time was the telegram received? Precisely ten o'clock. And Dalton called for it almost immediately? Within three or four minutes, yes. That indicates that he was expecting it at just that time, said Nick. If I am right, I think I am. He was acting under plans previously laid with the sender, Martin, or he was otherwise informed just when the message would be sent. Do you recall ever having received another dispatch from Philadelphia, signed Martin? I do not, said Belden, shaking his head. What type of man is Dalton? Describe it. Oh, well, he is a well-built man, about forty years old, quite dark, and he wears a full beard. He was clad in a plaid business suit. Hmm. The beard may have been a disguise. Oh, I think I would have detected it. You did not detect mine, smiled Nick. He may be equally skillful. Well, there may be something in that, Belden admitted, laughing. At all events, Mr. Carter, the man was a total stranger to me. But why do you regard the message so suspiciously? Have you a copy of it? Uh, yes, certainly. Let me see it. Belden stepped into the outer office, returning presently with a spindle, on which were copies of all the telegrams received that day. He began to remove them, seeking the one in question, and Nick said while waiting, By the way, Belden, have you received any other telegrams from Philadelphia this morning or within a day or two? Uh, yes, there was one this morning. Let me see that one also. Was it received before the other or later? About an hour earlier. Let me see both of them, then. Here's the first one, said Belden. It was received at nine o'clock. See for yourself, Mr. Carter. Nick took the telegram and read it. Gus DeWitt, Ready House, Shelby. Ten will hit me. 
quickest route. A. Monica. It was a message that would have signified very little to most men. It might have been an ordinary business communication, a wire concerning the price and quantity of desired merchandise and the direction for shipping it. Nick Carter's strong, clean-cut face, however, took on a more intent expression. By Jove, I am right, he said. It's a hundred to one that this was sent to notify Dalton just when to call for the message. Why do you think so? Belden inquired, leaning nearer to read the telegram. For three reasons, said Nick. First, the signature. A. Monica. What about it? It evidently is a man's name. I see nothing remarkable in it. There is, nevertheless, replied Nick. Monica, Belden, is a slang term for a nickname. Undoubtedly, in this case, it refers to a fictitious name or an alias. It means, I think, that an alias would be used in the message afterwards sent, signed Martin, and addressed to John Dalton, presumably an alias of which Dalton was already informed. My gracious, Carter, you may be right. Ten will hit me. Told Dalton at just what time he must expect the message. He was, in effect, directed to call for it at that hour. Obviously, too, the business is secret and important, as well as off-cut. Or such a circumspect method of communication would not be necessary. Well, surely not, Belden agreed. But what do you make of the last, quickest route? By wire, Belden, of course, said Nick. A telegram is the quickest means of communication, when the telephone cannot be wisely and conveniently used. Well, that's right, too, Belden readily admitted. But, Jove, you have a long head, Mr. Carter. Training enables one to detect such points as these, Nick replied. Do you know, Gus DeWitt, to whom this message is addressed? I do not. It was sent to the Ready House. Yes, it may have been signed for by the clerk or delivered to DeWitt himself. The boy who took it there could tell us, but he is out just now. You can telephone to the Ready House and find out. Not by a long chalk, Nick quickly objected. I don't want my interest in this matter suspected. Have you found the other message? Yes, here it is. Belden tendered the yellow paper on which the copied message was written. Chapter 2. The Intercepted Letter Nick Carter read more carefully the telegram discussed in the hotel café, and which had so seriously aroused his suspicions. John Dalton, Shelby. Dust Fly. S.D. On Way. Where Eagle. Mott. Belden watched the detective for a moment, then asked, What do you make of it? Dust flying seems to have no definite significance. On the contrary, Belden, it is very significant to me, said Nick. You've heard it said, no doubt, that some men have dust on their clothes, others in them. Dust? You mean money? Exactly. There is money moving in some way, Belden, or about to be moved, of which felonious advantage is going to be taken. In other words, Belden, crooks are about to get the money. Ah, I see. Belden exclaimed with eyes lighting. You suspect that a crime is being framed up? Precisely. I feel reasonably sure of it. For any other reason? Yes. Notice the last phrase in the message. Where eagle, said Belden, reading it. What deuce can you make of that? Is one of them to wear an eagle or some such insignia? Not at all, said Nick. It's a warning. A warning? Surely. Observe the spelling of where, W-A-R-E. The word does not refer to something to be worn, 
or it would be properly spelled. It is an abbreviation of the word beware. In reality, Bill, the phrase means beware, eagle. But how do you interpret that? questioned Belden perplexedly. Why is Dalton to beware of an eagle? I can't make any sense to that. Nick laughed a bit grimly. I can, he said tersely. Crooks have favored me with all sorts of names and epithets. I am the eagle referred to, as sure as you're a foot high. I see the point. This man, Martin, the sender of the message, has warned Dalton to beware of me, Nick added. It was that phrase that first led me to suspect the character of the entire message. It is generally known now that I am here in the service of the SNO Railway. This message convinces me, therefore, that another of the railway crime is about to be attempted. It's up to me to head it off, if possible, or at least to get the outlaws. By Jove, you are a wonderful man, Mr. Carter, said Belden with much enthusiasm. There is no denying that you probably have interpreted both messages correctly. I think so, said Nick modestly. But how can you head off the anticipated crime or succeed in getting the outlaws? That is another part of the story. Nick replied, smiling. One of them evidently is on the way here. Someone whose initials are S.D., added Belden, glancing at the message. If you can identify him and find Gus DeWitt, I shall certainly do the latter, Nick interposed. But you are wrong in regard to the other. How so? S.D. does not, in all probability, refer to a man. A woman? No. To what, then? To a special delivery letter, said Nick confidently. Oh, by thunder, Belden exclaimed. That must be right, too. You have nailed every point in both of these messages. And the next step, Belden, is to nail the special delivery letter, Nick declared. It is presumably coming from Philadelphia, and most likely sent by this man, Martin. Do you know whether a mail from Philadelphia has arrived here since ten this morning? There is not, said Belden promptly. I know all about the mails. One is due here from Philadelphia at two o'clock. Very good. Let me use your telephone to talk with one of my assistants. I want him to meet me at the post office. Certainly. Go as far as you like. In the meantime, Belden kindly make me a copy of each of these messages, Nick added, turning to the telephone. I then will be off to intercept that special delivery letter. I may yet succeed, I think, in putting something over on Martin, Dalton, and DeWitt. Belden hastened to comply. Nick called up the Shelby house in the meantime and quickly got in communication with Chick Carter and Patsy Garvin, his two assistants, both of whom he directed to meet him in disguise at the local post office. Then, having again cautioned Belden to absolute secrecy, Nick hastened away to keep the appointment. It was half-past one when he entered the post office, where he found Chick and Patsy awaiting him. Without delaying to explain the situation, he at once led the way to the private office of the postmaster, Adam Holden, who readily gave him an interview. Nick then made himself known, introducing Chick and Patsy, after which he exhibited the two telegrams, confiding his suspicions to Holden and stating what he required of him. But that is decidedly against the law, Mr. Carter, the intercepting and opening of another person's letter, Holden forcibly objected. I don't see how I can consent to let you do so. This is a very serious offense. 
not nearly as serious as the circumstances, Nick forcedly argued. When dealing with offenders against the law, with a gang of criminals engaged in we know not what, nor have we other means of learning, an unlawful step in order to foil them and serve the law may very properly be taken. Hmm, well, possibly. Do not feel, nevertheless, that I can permit... Now hold, you wait one moment, Nick interrupted. It is absolutely necessary that I shall see the letter. I will assume all of the responsibility. But, or if you prefer, Nick cut in impressively, I will send Chick to Judge Barclay of the local court and get from him a special order to open the letter. He is corporation counsel for the S&O Railway Company. We'll have a very keen appreciation for the circumstances. Bear in mind, too, that the letter is not to be held up permanently. It will be delayed only a very few minutes, and the recipient will be none the wiser. I can open and reseal the letter without his even suspecting it. Very well, Holden said reluctantly. You get an order from the court, Mr. Carter, and I will yield to your wishes. Attend to it, Chick, said Nick, turning to his assistant. State the circumstances to Judge Barclay, and bring the order here as quickly as possible. You will have no trouble in getting it. Surely not, Chick agreed, rising to go. He has absolutely confidence in your judgment. I'll return within a quarter hour. You have ample time, put in Holden. The mail will not be in for nearly half an hour. Very good, said Nick. In the meantime, Patton, you go to the ready house and see what you can learn about Gus DeWitt. You will probably find him there, for he must be expecting the special delivery letter and should be waiting for it. Sure thing, Chief, if the game is what you suspect, Patsy declared. Be off then, and phone me here, Nick directed. Make sure you do nothing to arouse his suspicions. Trust me for that. Look up Dalton also. See what you can learn about him. Call me up in half an hour for further instructions. I got you, Chief, said Patsy, hastening to depart. Nick waited patiently. Postmaster Holden appeared nervous and uncertain. He was relieved in about fifteen minutes, however, by the return of Chick, bringing from the magistrate the order Nick had requested. Ten minutes later, a mail wagon rattled into the post office yard, and Holden went to bring all of the special delivery letters to his private office. There proved to be only six of them, and the one referred to in the telegram was easily determined. It bore the Philadelphia postmark and was addressed to Gus DeWitt at the Ready House. How can you open and reseal it? Holden questioned doubtfully, while the detective examined the letter. Oh, very easily, said Nick. So that it will not be detected? Surely. A little steam will turn the trick, no wax having been applied to the flap of the envelope. Your radiator will surface. We'll find out in about two minutes what this letter contained. Nick arose while speaking and stepped to the radiator. He turned the key of the small air tube and opened the valve. A faint blowing and sputtering ensued, soon followed by the ejection of a slender stream of steam. Nick adjusted it carefully, then held the back of the envelope in the thread of the steam until the heat and moisture softened the paste on the flap, which he then opened without injury, removing the letter and laying the envelope aside to dry. Now, Chick, we'll see what Martin has to say in this special delivery, he remarked complacently, while unfolding the single sheet of paper so artfully taken from its cover. 
Chick drew nearer to gaze at it. The communication also was typewritten on a sheet of perfectly plain paper. It read as follows. Dear Gus, the payroll package goes through tonight, Tuesday, on the Southern Limit. We'll have the substitute down fine in ample time, and the other dead to rights. Be on hand to relieve us of the goods at the point agreed upon. Nothing doing until south of North Dayton. It looks like a walkover. I'll see you after turning the trick. Martin. Nick Carter glanced through the letter, then read it aloud to his two companions. The significance of it could not be mistaken. By gracious, Holden exclaimed. You were right, Mr. Carter. It's a job to rob the express car on the Southern Limited. Nothing less, said Nick. I suspected something of the kind. That train is due here from Philadelphia soon after midnight. A fit hour for such a felonious job, Nick declared. But we must be equal to the needs of the hour. Not a word of this to others, Hope, under any circumstances. Surely not. You can depend on my discretion. I will make a copy of this letter. You then may reseal it and have it delivered precisely as if it had not been opened. I will do so, Mr. Carter. It took Nick only a few moments to make the copy. Holden had not finished resealing the letter, however, when the ringing of the telephone was the harbinger of a communication from Patsy. Hold that letter until after I have a talk with him, Nick directed. Patsy's report was brief and to the point. John Dalton is not known here, said he, speaking from a booth in the ready house. Gus DeWitt arrived here two days ago. He has been here on other occasions for a day or two, but nothing definite is known about it. He now is in the hotel office and is evidently waiting for the special delivery letter. Anything more? Nick inquired. That's all the date, returned Patsy. I've got my eye on the man. Keep it on him, Patsy, after he receives the letter, Nick directed. Shadow him, if possible, or find some way to trail him. Listen while I tell you what the letter contains. It may be of some advantage to you. Shoot, I'm all ears, said Patsy. Nick then repeated the letter verbatim and told Patsy of what his suspicions consisted, again directing him to make a special mark of DeWitt until otherwise instructed. Replacing the receiver, Nick then turned to the postmaster and said, Now, Holden, you may send that letter along. Take it from me, too, that Dalton will not be the wiser until I snap a pair of bracelets on his wrists. The sooner the better, Carter, in my opinion, replied the other. It could be done when the letter is delivered. I know that, Holden, but that's much too soon. It's not going to be done until I can put bracelets on every crook engaged in this job, Nick declared with grim determination. I agree with you that that would still be better, smiled Holden, turning to hasten out with the fateful letter, for such it proved to be. Well, friends, that concludes the first episode of the latest Nick Carter mystery. And, looking ahead, it's shaping up to be a good one. A short reminder that this will be the final Nick Carter story for the season. And I'll be finishing up the year with a couple of creepy ghost stories for Halloween and two stories for Christmas released just before Thanksgiving. And beginning Thanksgiving week will be Stave One of Charles Dickens' classic holiday ghost tale, A Christmas Carol. You won't want to miss that. Another small reminder, friends, that if you become a monthly supporter of the show, I will provide you with a coupon code good for free shipping until the end of the year at my merchandise shop. 
It's loaded with all kinds of interesting things, only a few of which have anything to do with the show. But all sales help to support it, so feel free to share and peruse at your leisure. All links are available on the website at forwardintothepastpodcast.com. Okay, friends, I'm done rambling for today. As always, thanks for listening, keep sharing the stories, and be a good human. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>